0: Welcome back to the Evidence for Faith courses with Michael Lane, brought to you by our wonderful donors at evidenceforfaith.org. You can help us produce the next course by becoming a donor at evidenceforfaith.org/give. That's evidence the number 4 faith.org/give. And while you're on the website, don't forget to check out some of our other courses and even live events and adventure trips we have going on, such as our marine biology trip down in the Florida Keys or even our biblical archaeology experience down in Israel. You can find all these links and even more information down in the description. And if you've enjoyed today's course, don't forget to share it with a friend.
1: Hello, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. So glad you're with me again as we continue in our study on David, a study in leadership. And as we look at this, um, David's Guide to Leadership, we're um, going to be in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 18 this morning as we go through and learn some more about leadership. This is a very important lesson for a lot of people because it's one that we many times leaders just failed to learn very well. It's about how to handle victories, handling victory. And as we get into this, let's open in prayer that the Holy Spirit will do the teaching, and um, we'll jump right in this then with a short story, and then we'll get into it. Father God, we thank you for this time we have, and we, again, just appeal to your Holy Spirit to do the teaching, help us to, to see what is in this passage that we can add to our lives to help us, Lord, when we do experience victory in our lives, spiritual victories, or even just victories, Lord, that um, we experience just in the workforce or in a family or whatever. So guide us through this, we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Let me tell you a story here that's really interesting, a little bit of history. The war, uh, this war had been going on for a long time. And and what's funny is a lot of people didn't even know and remember how, how it got started or what caused it. This war started in 1338, when the King of France died with no son for an heir. Now, Edward III, the King of England, and grandson of France's prior king, that would be Philip IV, declared that he was now not only the King of England, but the King of France too. Now, this was repulsive to the French people, and when the Holy Roman Emperor endorsed Edward's claim France rebelled. Thus began the 100 Years War in Europe. Most of the war occurred in France, and it did not go well for the French. Edward invaded Normandy in 1346 and conquered many lands and cities from the French. Peace treaties would be made on occasion, then broken when it seemed feasible to start fighting again. Then in 1348, the Black Death, marched across Europe, unmercifully killing without regards to country or loyalties. Because of the expense of the war, the fighting was very sporadic, but usually ended with English victories. And this continued for decades, with large number of English soldiers on French soil. But this was about to change. You see, in in Fort 12 was born in Domre, a girl named Jeanne. She grew up in a comfortable little village as an illiterate peasant, but was known as a good seamstress. A devout mystic, now that's a belief aimed at the certainty of salvation and truth through spiritual experiences. It, it means to, uh, it sought to have a more personal and individualistic relationship with God. Well, Jeanne began to have visions at the age of 13. The sum of these visions was Michael, the archangel, visiting her and telling her to rally the French troops to victory at Orleans. So strong was her devotion that she actually appealed to Charles VII, the rightful heir of the French throne. Charles believed her and backed her, And because of Jeanne, he was proclaimed the King of France in Reims in 1429. Now, the story doesn't end here. Being she felt her call from God was fulfilled by her victory, she asked to be released from military duty to go home, but Charles wouldn't hear of it. He used her as a standard to rally and inspire his troops. In future battles... She was wounded, but was still required by Charles to lead the army. At Compiegne, she was captured by the Burgurdians and sold to their English allies. She was put on trial for witchcraft and was executed at the stake in 1430. Charles VII did nothing, nothing at all to aid or to help her. In other words, the man she put on the throne left her to die alone. That's the story of who we normally in this country call Joan of Arc. You know, I can't help to see some biblical story of David and Saul here. In chapter 17, um, in our last lesson, we saw David about to have battle with the giant Goliath, which he does have victory. And and kills him and then the Israeli army comes over and routs the Philistines and they win. So it concludes with David's victory over, over these Philistines. Now that's chapter 17. Now notice how chapter 18, there's we're gonna be in 1 Samuel 18. Notice carefully how it begins. It has David becoming best friends with King Saul's son, Prince Jonathan. Let's start. 1 Samuel 18, let's read the first five verses here, and this is out of the English Standard Version. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe, That was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants now did you catch that important phrase there in verse 5 David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. You see what happened? David gets promoted again. He's promoted again. He's singled out from all the other men of Israel and promoted in the army to the rank of, did you catch it? General. Yes, David instantly became a general. He was... He was just a young teenager at the time. I mean, what the hey, what? I mean, I look back in history to try and find examples of young people, um, maybe even those who weren't in the army being promoted instantly to general. History does contain extremely few, but there are a few examples of someone who rose in the rank from being a private to general instantly. There are, there are very few things like that. There's a couple of famous ones. Um, that I can tell you about real quick. The infamous Nathan Bedford Forrest entered the service as a private for the Confederacy during the Civil War. He quickly attained the rank of lieutenant colonel almost overnight and then general. Or, or how about Confederate General Patrick Claiborne? He volunteered as a private. They wouldn't accept that. They made him a captain, and then right after, they promoted him to general. I mean, examples like this are extremely rare, but to go from not even being in the service, being in the army, to being promoted to general, commander-in-chief of the army, that is really unfounded. That is just bizarre. Obviously, it's God's providence. I mean, think about this. Think about David's situation. What was going on? These are great questions to ask when you read your Bible. Always ask yourself who, what, when, where, why, and how. Look at these things and answer them. What were some of the other people around there thinking? Weren't there other soldiers in the army, like, for instance, his brothers, standing around waiting to be promoted? Wasn't there probably someone who might have been serving in the army with the rank of captain, waiting for the next promotion list to come out so that he could be promoted? I'm sure in an army that size, I'm sure there were people like that all around Saul, trying to catch Saul's eye, trying to get promoted. Because the reason I could say that, the flesh of man is so full of pride and wants power. That's part of the sin of the fall. We, want, we have pride and we want power. People like this, they want to be in command of more people. And when they get it, they want even more people. There's a saying for people like this. It's called power hungry. Power hungry. David could have easily given in to such a desire. I mean, let's face it. He just soundly defeated a giant, cut off his head. His actions caused the entire army of Israel to whom, remember, up to this time was cowardly, keeping mum behind the front lines to come running out and then crush the Philistines. David was the turning point Of the battle. Now the battle is over, and what happens? The king promotes David from, get this now, king promotes David from shepherd songwriter to general. Wow. And Saul is 100% behind David. And I love this. Even Prince Jonathan is not jealous, but actually loves this and sees this as being God's God's will. The king no doubt sees that God is obviously with this young man. Jonathan obviously sees it too, and so do the troops. The troops all agreed, it says, with Saul. Even that's amazing. Remember, it said, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. That's verse 5. That's how verse 5 ends. So things are going great for David. I mean, can you... (laughs) He's got to be riding a high here. Victory after victory comes and goes. And very soon, all this great support and popularity, though, are going to vanish. And David goes from being on the top of the heap to the bottom of the barrel. Does happen. Let's take a look at this. Let's read now 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9 and see what happens. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women of all the cities of Israel came out singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck his thousands, David his tens thousands. Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Matter of fact, the very next day, as we continue reading on this, you're going to see the very next day, things change. Saul no longer wants David around. It begins to plot his death. Get this. This is verse 10 and 11. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Hmm. Let me tell you. Something that I've experienced often in guiding others. When you experience victories, my friends, be on the lookout for misery. Misery will come following behind. Misery often follows victory. It's a hard fact to acknowledge, but that is the way it's, it often is. Misery follows victory. I have learned that the hard way myself, and David is experiencing it here. He had just defeated Goliath and the Philistines in battle. he has been promoted over all the soldiers. He's been praised in the city and the streets by all the people, including the women. A normal person's ego would be so swollen by all this attention and praise that they would not be able to get their head through the door. But not David. No, he realized that all this is happening because God is getting glory out of it. You see, that was his focus. There's a lesson for us right there. That's why scripture often describes David as a man after God's own heart. You often see this mentioned throughout um, the books of Samuel and Kings, that David was a man after God's own heart. You see, I don't think and I don't believe for a moment that David, after his victory, was insisting on a cover story from Time or Newsweek. I don't think that David went down and bought 50 copies of the Jerusalem Gazette looking for articles about him in the battle and, and his promotion. I believe he was keeping his eyes on God, who allowed all this to happen and just as easily could take it all away at any time. You see, David was, as the scripture says, successful. In fact, in this one chapter, in chapter 18, we find. Uh, the Hebrew word sakal being used four times, four times to describe David. Now, what does sakal mean? Sakal means to have good success, to make understanding, to, to be wisely. Um, that's what is going on. So That's why it often says that David had success. That's the, the word going on here. There's no hint of hypocrisy in the description of David whatsoever. Matter of fact, look what God has recorded in this chapter concerning David. This is all in this chapter. Look at this. In verse 5, we saw, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. You go down to verse 14, it says, And David had success. In all this undertaking for the Lord was with him verse 15 we read and when Saul saw that he had great success it's speaking of David and then in 1 Samuel 1830 we read and David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed David is experiencing a spiritual and emotional high I mean that is great to be con- uh, called Sakal in all these times that he is successful, that he is, is wisely um, seeing success, exceeding success at everything he does. Wow, that's interesting. But let's continue. Verse 17 through 23. Look how Saul reacts to all this and how David responds. Then Saul said to David, Here is my eldest daughter, Mirab; I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battle. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the meth mehethelite for a wife. Verse 20, now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. and And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in, a private, in private and say, Behold, the king is delighted in you, and all the servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servant spoke these words to David in David's ear. And David said, Does it seem you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation. Do you notice what's been going on here? Saul is trying to kill David, and he's setting a trap using his own daughters, um, trying to allow David to marry his daughter, hoping that he will be killed. Yet David is still so humble, so modest, that he can't believe in his fortune in a way. Like, who am I? I have no reputation. Who am I to be the the son-in-law to the king of Israel? You see, this is genuine humility. He is so modest, not like other people. Many people I know of that, (laughs) well, they have conceit in their hearts. They know the right words to say when they get a promotion or something like this. Uh, They know what to say. They say the right words, but you can tell that's not the way their heart is. David appears truly humble, remembering who he is and where he came from. Now, I'll tell you, as I studied this passage, I came across nine, uh, I'm sorry, um, there's, there's seven, not nine. I came across, excuse me on that. There's seven really, really important leadership lessons that we can learn from David in this chapter. So let's take a look at the first one. As we read this, we see David acknowledges, did you catch this? That David acknowledges that victories come from God. We should do the same thing. When promotions come up, when anything good happens to you, whatsoever good comes your way, As it says in Scripture, all good things come from God, the Father of lights. If it comes to you, it's from God. It's not your own doing, folks. That's the first lesson. That's a very important one. Next, number two, David is not seeking glory for his accomplishments because he realizes God is the one who is doing this. They are really God's accomplishments. David realized God can raise up anyone who he desires to fulfill his purpose. David realized that he was just a tool. Did you catch this? He's a tool in God's hands. David realizes this. A tool should never seek the praise of the job done. No, it's the master craftsman who gets the praise. I learned this many years ago watching my dad a long, long time ago. He's um, been with the Lord now for many, many years, but my dad was very good at making wood furniture and crafts, and that was sort of like his hobby. He had a little workshop um, behind his garage, and he would make all sorts of little things to big furniture and stuff, and he would sell it sometimes at flea markets, or others would come by, and they would buy it or just come by and admire it. I never can recall once when people came to purchase or admire my dad's creations that they wanted to see his hammer or his drill or even a saw, the tools with which he made the crafts. He didn't want to see the sander. They didn't want to see the sander. Instead, they wanted to meet him, the creator of the craft, not the tools. So he receives the praise, not the hammer. It's the craftsman. The craftsman who deserves praise and honor. David understood that. We would do well to learn that. A third uh, lesson we can learn. Victory comes sort of like a locomotive on a long train. As it's coming, it makes a lot of noise. And after it passes by the engine itself, the noise somewhat dies down. But you know what's following? is a caboose. The caboose follows the train. Even so, David didn't lose sight of God and all these problems and threats against his life or worries about them. Now, victory, you have it, makes a lot of noise, things die down, and often misery comes from behind it. Don't lose sight of God in your problems and the threats that come afterwards. Don't worry about them. Let God worry about them. He'll take care of it. I know it's easy to say and it's hard to do, but that's what David learned, and he's able to do it. Remember, this guy's a teenager. Fourth point, David didn't fight his way to the top of the heat. I really admire this about him. He let God do all the work. He was much more interested in his relationship with God than in the opinions of men or the quest for power. In short, David was a man after God's own heart, says this in Scripture. He was not power hungry. We need to be wary of this deadfall trap that Satan uses so often with people do not be power hungry. If God wants you to be promoted, listen, folks, you will get promoted. Too many people work so hard, they expel so much energy and so much wealth, and they trample over others to gain power. If if you're supposed to be in that position, if God wants you there, listen, the, the same God who created everything out of nothing has the power to put you into position. And as David knew, too, he has also the power to take you out. So be wary, be wise, don't be power-hungry. Fifth point, once promoted, and I like this, David didn't think of himself being too important to do other work. Now, he is now the military leader. Yet we see that after the battles, after the songs of praise were lavished upon him, what do we find David doing? He's back with his lyre, playing music, for Saul. That was his old job. He didn't tell Saul, hey king, I know you got a headache now and I have to go fight the ba- you know the Philistines for a battle and stuff, so you're gonna have to find somebody else to play your music or put some CDs on for you or, or turn on the computer for you and stuff like this, because you see, I'm just too important to do those lesser tasks now. <sighs> no, that's not David. No, not at all. Folks, If God puts you in a leadership position never think you're too important to do menial work how often I have witnessed some people um, that just do this once they get promoted they change everything about their appearance and the way that they treat others and stuff you know what else I've noticed I've also noticed that the best leaders are those who are servants to their followers they work with their followers. They don't walk on them. They don't beat them with whips or whatever. They work with their followers. They work with them. They inspire them, and they help them accomplish their task. David didn't lord over everyone with power. He remained himself a humble man. If you are put in a position over people, don't start treating them as you know second-class citizens. David didn't do this. That's not right. Something happened this last week that sort of caught my eye as I was studying this passage. Um, I was um, handed a photograph, but I want to give you a little insight on this. You see, I I love World War II history in particular. I I just love history. But um, there was a German field marshal named um, Erwin Rommel of the famed Africa Corps in. um, uh, he was a German general, and he was a very great leader. He's considered one of the greatest generals who's ever lived. His men loved him, and he was very, very successful. Um, he's often called brilliant. In fact, most of Germany loved this man. He was so popular. Now, why am I telling you this? I saw recently an old photograph I'd never seen before, and I've read many books on Erwin Rommel. Um, And I've seen some movies and documentaries and stuff of him, too. But I saw something just this past week I'd never seen before. It was an old photograph of him with a group of common soldiers of this, you know, the privates, corporals, et cetera, sergeants that were standing around. And what was going on is they were pushing a truck that had got the rear wheels stuck in a hole in the sand in the desert. The the tires were stuck in this. But what caught my attention wasn't that Rommel was riding in the trunk or, um, or was standing on the side of the road ordering his men to push the truck out of the sand? No, this is a photograph of him in the middle of the group of men. He joined them shoulder to shoulder to push the truck out of the sand. Some would say that's a menial task. No leader, no general or field marshal should ever stoop so low. Those are things like that that inspired the men of the Africa Corps to to love this guy. That's leadership. You might not like Erwin Rommel and the Nazis and what they did. I mean, what they did was in, uh, atrocities and terrible things. But as a man, as a leader, this guy was amazing. A sixth point David can teach us in this passage. Watch what you say. Watch what you say. David never insulted or complained about the way Saul was treating him. Did you catch any of that in there? In that passage that Saul is doing all this? I mean, he promises his first, uh, his oldest daughter to him, takes it away. Does David complain? No. Nothing like that is happening. In all the bad things that happened, David seemed to have kept control of his tongue. You know, there's a great proverb for that. Proverbs are... A fantastic. That book is just loaded with wisdom. And I like the way that Proverbs 10, 19 reads, especially in the NLT, the New Living Translation. It just makes it as plain as can be. Um, Proverbs 10, 19 in the NLT reads, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. (laughs) I love that. I think that's just a fantastic passage. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Boy, there's a lot of people. We need to learn that. Um, David was careful about what exited his mouth. Leaders, when victory presents itself or even the misery that follows, be careful of what comes out of your mouth. You seldom hear of a quiet person ever being referred to as a fool. You just don't catch that. And then the seventh point, the final one on this. When, When promoted over others... Jealousy many times will raise its ugly head. But in the case of David, Saul was jealous to the point that he sought to murder David. He tried many times, but notice how David reacted to this jealousy. David refused to fight back or even get even. He just kept behaving with wisdom. And when confrontation arose, like Saul throwing a spear at him to kill him, David simply fled the scene. There is nothing recorded about David yelling back or cursing Saul. I believe he silently left. Some may call that action being a coward. No, I believe it's wisdom. Big difference between the two, though some people see them as the same. No, they're not. David acted in a way that pleased God, and God made him even more successful. My friends, when we must deal with jealous coworkers, roommates, a boss, a friend, we need to remember David's example here. Be silent. Remember what it says, to be silent. This is a great example of leadership. So we can learn a lot about leadership from this little chapter here. Let me close by telling you a story. Actually, it's an essay I came across in a a book called The Window and Other Essays. Um, I'm going to read the one called The Window. It's by G.W. Target. And in this book, there's a cute story that really caught my attention years ago with this. And let me just read this to you as we close this out. There were once two men, both seriously ill, in the same small room of a great hospital. Quite a small room. Just large enough for the pair of them, two beds, two bedside lockers, a door opening into the hall, and one window looking out into the world. Now, one of the men, as part of his treatment, was allowed to sit up in bed for an hour in the afternoon. Um, It had something to do with draining fluid from his lungs. And his bed was next to the window. But the other man had to spend all of his time flat on his back. And both of them had to be kept quiet and still. This was a reason they were in a small room by themselves, you see. And they were very grateful for the peace and the privacy. None of the bustle and clatter of prying eyes from the general ward for them. No, they had a private room. Of course, one disadvantage of their condition was that they weren't allowed to do much. They couldn't read. They were not allowed to listen to the radio or watch television. They just had to keep quiet and still. Just the two of them. They used to talk for hours and hours on things like their wives, their childhood, their homes, their former jobs, their hobbies, their childhood, and what they did during the war. They were both veterans. Where they had been on vacation, All sorts of things like that. Every afternoon, when the man in the bed next to the window was propped up for his hour, he would pass the time describing what he could see outside. The other man began to just live for those hours. Apparently, the window overlooked a park with a lake where there were ducks and swans, children throwing bread to the birds the sailing of model boats young lovers walking hand in hand beneath the trees and there were flowers and stretches of grass and games of softball and and people taking ease in the sunshine and right at the back behind a fringe of trees a fine view of the city skyline the man on his back would listen to all this enjoying every minute how a child nearly fell into the lake How beautiful girls were in their summer dresses and the exciting ball game that took place one day or a boy playing with his puppy. It got to the place that he could almost see what was happening out that window. Then one afternoon, when there was some sort of parade, the thought struck him. Why should the man next to the window have all this pleasure? See what's going on? Why shouldn't I get the chance? He felt ashamed at first and tried not to think about it, but the more he tried, the worse he wanted to change. He'd do anything to get to that window. In a few days, he turned sour. He should be by the window, and he brooded and couldn't sleep and grew more seriously ill, which none of the doctors quite understood. One night, as he stared at the ceiling, the man by the window suddenly woke up coughing and choking. The fluid congesting in his lungs his hand groping for the button but he couldn't find it that would bring the night nurse running the other man laid on his bed watching without moving or doing anything the coughing racked the darkness on and on choked and off then stopped and the man continued to stare at the ceiling In the morning, the day nurse came in with water for their baths and found the man by the window dead. They took his body away quietly with no fuss. As soon as it seemed decent, the man asked if he could be moved to the bed next to the window. So they moved him, tucked him in, made him quite comfortable, and left him alone and quiet and still. The minute they'd gone, he forcibly propped himself up on one elbow in extreme pain and uh, very difficult times doing this and to get a grasp and look out the window what he saw was a blank wall just a brick wall nothing else my friends we can learn a lot from such things David was a great leader He knew how to handle promotions, he knew how to handle victories, he was also wise knowing misery follows, but he always sought God's will. That's what we need to do, too. Father God, we thank you for this time, and I thank you for each person who's listening, and I ask, Lord, that you hear their prayers and bless them, and Lord, if it be your will, we ask that you help us all to be better leaders, to learn from David's example that your Holy Spirit continue to teach us through this and throughout our day. And Lord, I pray also in thankfulness for this ministry that we can reach out to people. Thank you so much for allowing us to do this, these podcasts and videos and such. So please be with us as we go through our day today, keeping us safe and drawing us close to your heart. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you so much for joining me today on this lesson, and I uh, hope you tune in next for the next lesson in this series in First Samuel on the leadership of, Jane, uh, of, of David. And again, um, we are a, uh, a ministry that is just funded by donations. Um, please go to uh, evidenceforfaith.org, and you can see how to support us, and we would love to have you pray for us uh, or even to contact us and, and talk to us. We, we would appreciate that. So, until we meet again, take care, and may God bless.
0: Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to help us produce the next course, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. faith.org/give. And don't forget to use some of the other links in our description. You can find out more about Evidence for Faith and what we do as a ministry, and even sign up to some of our programs. And if you've enjoyed today's course, don't forget to share it with a friend so they can benefit from it, too. And with that, we hope to see you on the next course.